Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to this special bonus episode. This is Stephen Moe speaking. I was involved in helping organize a conference recently called Perspectives on Charity Law, Accounting, and Regulation in New Zealand. It was held at Te Papa at the end of April. And one of the sessions that I thought was really fascinating was called Are There Too Many Charities in New Zealand? We had five amazing speakers talking on this topic and giving their unique perspective. And because they were given only a limited number of minutes, they were able to really crystallize the essence of their arguments. So we had Cheryl Spain from the Gift Trust, Delwyn Stewart from the Auckland Foundation, Sue Barker from Sue Barker Charities Law, Jamie Cattell from Charity Services, and Kate Russell from the Fundraising Institute of New Zealand. Those of you who are regular listeners will know that normally on this show, I talk with one person and really dive deep with them and what's led them to get involved with whatever it is that they're doing today. So I've done more than 40 interviews exploring people's lives like that. So this is a real departure, but I think those of you who are listening will find it fascinating to hear this topic of, are there too many charities in New Zealand? A special shout out to Craig Fisher, who was the MC for the whole event, which went for two days. And he's the one who's speaking right at the beginning of the panel discussion. And then he introduces me because I was able to help out with moderating this session. All up, there were 12 sessions and we had 40 different speakers. And we've actually made all the material available on a website. If you go to the Charity Law Association of Australia and New Zealand and look up their events, we've uploaded all of the YouTube videos of the panel discussions. So you might want to check those out. And if you enjoy the content of this episode, then consider sharing it with other people and subscribing so that you don't miss out on future episodes. And if this is the first episode that you're listening in on, maybe check out some of the back catalog because I've explored a number of different themes with a really huge variety of people. Now let's dive into this panel discussion on the topic of are there too many charities in New Zealand? Right, our next session is, as Stuart has um, nicely segued into it, uh, are there too many charities in New Zealand? This is a very interesting topic. It's a topic that I know I have managed to spark up some debates with uh, previously, and it's fair to say that sometimes there is a bit of heat in some of those debates. Uh, so I think it is a good topic to, to talk about. Uh, so I'd like to invite uh, Stephen Moe from Parryfield Lawyers to be our moderator for this session, and uh, the panelists to come up uh, and get ready for this particular one. Stephen. Kia ora koto, ko Stephen Mo toku ingoa, no ota tahi ao. My name is Stephen Mo, and I come from Christchurch, and it's wonderful to see you all here. Uh, we have a fascinating topic to begin our panel discussions. I think everyone in the room will care about what we're talking about. How many uh, are actually on the register right now? Charities, how many are there? Does anybody know the actual number? I looked it up last night, it was 27,829. So the setting the scene point here is that in the UK, there's about one charity for every 393 people. And in Australia, one in every 422 people. And here, one in every 168 people. So there's clearly a lot of charities, I think we can all agree, and those are the registered ones. 
Does this signify that we as a country and as a nation care deeply and we want to help people? Is it a model that should be held up and that other people should look at New Zealand and say, look at the fantastic job that's going on there. We should do that as well. Or is it a case of the number eight wire mentality permeating our culture so much that when we see a problem, we think we can fix it? And so we start a charity, not realizing that our cousin down the road started the same charity a year ago. Is there too much duplication? I think we can all agree that there's a finite number of resources, so how do we use those resources efficiently? These are some of the topics that we're gonna to be touching on this morning, and we have five panelists here. I'm not gonna introduce each one of them because the full bios are in the um, brochure. So what I'd encourage you to do is have a look through that um, because I really want to save enough time for us to have some meaningful discussion and we're going to get as deep as possible as quickly as possible. The format is going to be each speaker has six minutes. Imagine summarizing everything you think on this topic to six minutes but they're going to do it and we're going to move quickly along the row and then at the end of that we've allowed for half an hour of questions from the floor. And at the back, there's some microphones. So as we get towards the end, if you can make your way there and you're, feel free to ask your question. And then we'll direct the question to who we think is appropriate and we'll do our best to answer it. Um, and again, if I can say again what Craig said, these are questions, not commentaries. So we're gonna start off with Delwyn Stewart from Auckland Foundation. Can I ask you to share with us? Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, good morning, everyone. Duplication is uh, a word that was used a few times already this morning. So it's relatively early in the day and we're in Wellington. So let's start by talking a bit about coffee. Um, for those of you who don't know this, Wellington was named in the top eight coffee destinations in the world by CNN recently. It is home to the nation's leading coffee barista. Uh, and with a population of only about 500 million, uh, it has more cafes per capita than New York. So why, I wonder, are we not asking ourselves the question of are there not too many cafes in Wellington? <laughs> Should we be demanding mergers and back office admin sharing between cafes? Surely there could at least be some aggregating of uh, roasteries. There are 10 of those here in Wellington. Now we don't ask those questions, and we don't ask them because we like to have choice. Um, we like the convenience of our local cafe, both near our home and near where we work. Um, the relative low cost of entry means that new models are easy to try and uh, innovation happens. And the market votes with its feet, so if we don't like a cafe, we go find another one. Um, however, in the not-for-profit sector, it's different. So capital and customer flows are not the same. And I think a big driver in this is transparency. It's not easy to see into the sector um, and compare and contrast performance. Um, an example I often use is children's mental health. So if I was a donor wanting to put, say, 100,000 a year into children's mental health, um, I'm passionate about this, but I don't know where to start. 
So there seems to be no agreement on taxonomy and classification, so it's very different to contrast and compare. It's difficult to see what charities are fulfilling which roles, and um, potentially the IRD has this data, but I haven't discovered how, how to use it. So in the example of children's mental health, how can a donor easily see who's doing the good remedial work? So who, who's the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff doing good remedial work efficiently and effectively? Who's undertaking research to find new remedies and new practices? Who's targeting specialty needs? So who's really focused in on anxiety in children? Who's investing in workforce development? Who's prioritising physical assets such as clinics and hospitals? Um, which charity, if I'm passionate about building awareness and having conversations about children's mental health, who does that work? And who's promoting good policy around mental health? So there's lots of layers and ways to look at the charitable sector which are largely opaque if I'm a donor. I can't see easily who's doing that work. Now as, as investors ourselves, and when we're investing our money and looking for a return, we demand that kind of information. So we can see, uh, we can put the money where we want to put it and we can see the return that we want to get. Um, yet donors are largely not demanding that information and are not willing to pay for that information when they're making charitable donations. So instead, um, we're most often hearing about, oh, there's inefficiencies in the market, there's duplication, there are too many charities, um, and everyone's favourite, admin costs should be zero. Um, so I think what we need, or my opinion, what we need is to create a much more efficient market that gives donors excellent information so that donations can flow to where good work is being done. Secondly, and quickly, because I'm running out of time already, um, I think there is room to improve the decision-making of those wishing to establish a charity. So uh, founders need much, more better, much better information up front. They need to be encouraged to reflect on their charitable objectives rather than quickly going to what structure. So the adage of um, uh, function, form follows function, I think, is, is very true here. And as advisors, I think we have, a, we have a role to play in that. A simple decision tree that was universally available that helped donors reflect on those objectives and help them make decisions around structure, I think would be a great start. Um, I lead a community foundation. We advise on giving. Um, we're built on a structure that is all about ease and efficiency and in fact not proliferating um, the registration of charities but we're still very much a best-kept secret. So I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity for much clearer information and communication. Around the world, community foundations are the fastest-growing form of philanthropy, and the reason for that is because it is a very easy and efficient model, and we can help enable that aggregation in the sector. And the last thing I wanted to suggest uh, would be that um, there's the potential to incentivise different kinds of models um, to achieve the change we want to see in the sector. So, for instance, in the USA, giving through an entity like a community foundation, which is more efficient, attracts a greater tax rebate. So three things for me. Transparency, so better information on sector performance so donors' money will flow to uh, where impact is greatest. Communication and awareness, so better 
um, universal knowledge up front about what structure will work and considering the use of incentives. Thank you. It, thank you so much, and that was exactly six minutes, amazing. <laughs> um, Cheryl, I'd like to invite you to come up. Um, Cheryl Spain from the Gift Trust. Kia ora, thank you, Stephen. Uh, and thank you, Dolan. I particularly liked the coffee analogy as a confirmed coffee addict. Um, so I'm coming at this topic from uh, a few different perspectives. Um, I'm just going to give you a little bit of context about what I do at the beginning. So I manage the Gift Trust. We are a philanthropic charitable trust, a registered charity. Um, and so we are a funder and we work on behalf of our donors who are individuals and families, occasionally companies, who want to distribute their charitable dollars to the causes that they are passionate about, a little bit similar to the Auckland Foundation in that respect. Um, so I'm really coming at this from the donor's perspective and from a funder's perspective um, and the conversations that we have with them around trying to navigate this complicated uh, world of the number of charities that are out there. And this question of are there too many charities, I do find it comes up time and again with our donors and particularly in the funding world. Um, and, and there are various different reasons about why it comes up. Um, so just a little bit in terms of what we do, we actually um, help our donors by, they, they open what we call a donor advised fund at the Gift Trust and we then help them distribute their funds the way that they want to but they operate under our charitable umbrella so that, that uh, creates some efficiencies in that respect. So in terms of the donors, why do they find it difficult? Well, as we've said, there are nearly 28,000 registered charities. It is very hard, as Delman mentioned, to actually find what particular charity is doing a particular thing. Yes, you can go on the charity services website, and, and it is a fantastic uh, data set for searching, and we use it quite regularly. And you can find all sorts of interesting data. But if you don't operate in this sector, um, if it's not your sort of day job to, to find that type of information, it is actually, it's not as, as user-friendly or transparent, I think, as it could be. So it is very difficult. So it is bewildering for donors. Um, and they really want to make the most impact with their funds. So it's a, it's a very important question for them. I don't think, though, that the question, just because it's a question in the funders' minds that, that, that there are so many charities and it's bewildering, I don't think that that, it, that means necessarily there are too many charities. I just, one of the things I think is it means we need to educate our donors better, we need to educate ourselves better, and in the philanthropic sector, I think we could do a little bit better at sharing information and sharing resources amongst each other around charities that we support, and also the resources that we use to help educate our donors to make better decisions. So that is one thing I think we could do a lot better. And at the Gift Trust, we are part um, of a, a small network in Wellington of the Wellington Funders, uh, Wellington Grant Makers Forum. We're working on a little pilot project about how we can share data around charities more effectively. And I think initiatives like that that could be rolled out nationally are something that would help in, in this sector particularly. Um, so the types um, of questions that come up with our donors are certainly around inefficiencies and duplication, um, as we've said, and that does come up. Um, but again, I just don't think that, sometimes it is the case that a number of small charities working on some issue 
Yes, there can be duplication. Yes, there can be inefficiencies. But mergers are not always the answer. I've certainly seen large charities that can be much more inefficient because of their bureaucracies than smaller lights on their feet charities that can actually get things done quickly and on the ground. I also think there's something to be said for diversity of approach in this sector. We're dealing with complex, difficult and pervasive uh, societal and environmental problems often that these charities are looking to solve. And we need a variety and diversity of approaches to solving those problems. So I think it's really important that we have a number of charities perhaps testing out different um, answers, different solutions, and bouncing them around each other rather than necessarily always uh, looking for mergers. I also think if we are talking about uh, mergers or partnerships, it's very important that it doesn't just come from the funders, it has to come from the charities themselves. They have to see the reason for doing that, that it's not just being pushed upon them by the funders' perspectives. Um, so the other perspective I come at this from is, as I've said, a grant-making a grant -making charity. Um, now, there are, last time I looked, it was around about 5,000 registered grant-making charities on the charities register. These are charities that are solely set up to distribute funds to other charities. They're often set up by individuals, families, sometimes in their wills, sometimes whilst, whilst they are alive and want to distribute funds. And they all very much do the same purpose. They, want, they might have a particular cause, a particular issue, but essentially they exist to distribute funds. Now, there are a lot of inefficiencies in that model. And I guess my key take-home message to those of you who are professional advisors or lawyers or accountants in the room and advise clients on this matter is don't always look to set up a new charity to distribute funds. Look at the other models that are out there. The Gift Trust is a, is a model, the Community Foundations are another model that can help people to distribute funds, and we do have those uh, back office resources um, that we can help those, those organisations to save costs and also to save time, more importantly, I think. Um, it's costly to set up a charity, yes. It also takes time, uh, and it's something that we can all help as existing philanthropic trusts support and advise people to do sometimes more effectively. Thank you. Great. It, it's wonderful to have so many perspectives, and the, the purpose of this conference is to hear from many voices. So our next speaker is from the regulator, um, Jamie Cattell. Would you like to come up and um, give us your perspective? Kia ora. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Jamie Cattell, and I'm the Capability Accountant at Charity Services. Uh, in my role, I'm mainly focused on building financial capability in the charitable sector, focusing on uh, smaller charities at the moment. Um, in my previous life as an auditor, I never quite expected that I would be doing something like this, but I'm uh, thrilled to be here and I, would, I really look forward to hearing what everybody else has to say on this topic over the next few days. So. Turning to the question, are there too many charities in New Zealand? The more I think about it, the more I'm convinced it's an important question to be asking. However, to answer it directly as it's formulated would be to bypass entirely a lot of the more important information that should be considered. It would imply that there is a correct number of charities to have for New Zealand, and to answer the question with yes would be to devalue the intentions uh, of everyone who has registered a charity with a view to helping others or benefiting their community in some way. 
So in approaching this question, I propose a reformulation based on the purposes of charity services as set out in the Charities Act 2005. Section three sets out a number of purposes for us, uh, and arguably the two most important are to promote public trust and confidence in the charitable sector, and to encourage and promote the effective use of charitable resources. With this in mind, I think what we ought to be asking ourselves is, does the number of charities uh, registered in New Zealand have a negative impact on public trust and confidence, and does it represent the most effective use of charitable resources? To put these questions into context, and I'm sure this will come up over and over again, um, here's some very broad analysis of the data that's on the register. We obviously have one of the highest numbers of registered charities per capita in the world. As of today, there are over 27,000. Was it 27,829? Um, for a total population of 4.5 million people, I think we'd all agree that this is a positive thing which speaks to the character of New Zealanders. When you look at the split, though, what you can see is that tier four charities far outnumber tiers uh, one, two, and three at over 70% of the registered charities. And for reference, uh, tier four charities are those that have less than $125,000 a year of operating expenses. So these are not big charities by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and having over 18,000 of them leads one to wonder uh, to what extent these charities are duplicating the work. And again, a theme that's probably gonna keep coming up. Um, I think it's important though, so I just raise it again to keep it in mind. So to form a general impression of just how much duplication there might be, here's something a little bit more focused. Uh, these are all of the tier four charities in Auckland, uh, which is the region with the greatest number of registered charities. Uh, you can see that there's a broad grouping of these charities based on their primary activities. The two most obvious examples of duplication to discuss sit within the finance and resources groupings. In Auckland alone, there are 377 separate tier four charities that exist just to make grants, again, already raised. Um, another 238 of those uh, provide buildings uh, to organizations or housing to individuals, and then between them, they report total assets of 28 million and 165 million, respectively. So there's actually a lot of resources sitting there, uh, but segregated amongst this large group of charities. And I'm sure that each of these charities is operating as efficiently as they can, but it stands to reason that they could create more benefit by working together as a much larger entity. Um, for example, grant providers obviously usually have an endowment of assets, which they then invest and then they distribute their returns. Um, if these charities were to pull together and use something akin to the gift trust, a donor advised fund, they would be able to control the use of those assets while um, obtaining the benefits of being a much larger entity. Um, another important thing to remember, and I think this is one of the problems with duplication, is that each of these charities has to separately submit their own annual return and performance report. And this is definitely a duplication of activity. And when you think that a lot of these charities are employing professionals or using volunteer time to actually do this, um, that's a lot of resources that are being diverted away from the charitable purposes of those entities. So this brings me back 
to the first of my reformulated questions, which is, is there an impact on public trust and confidence? Here are some stats uh, pulled from a sample of performance reports for 2017 and 18 that we checked. We did a high-level check of these for compliance with the financial reporting standards, and one of the questions we asked was simply, has the entity actually applied the standards? Um, on the whole, the results are encouraging. Compliance is going up. Uh, if we look at tier four, we can see a significant improvement from 56 to 71% in terms of actually applying the standards across the two years. But this still means that over 5,000 charities in tier four are not using the standards at all. Um, to an extent, this is going to undermine the purpose of why the financial reporting standards were introduced in the first place, uh, which is to provide relevant, liable, reliable, and comparable information. Um, and more importantly, when considered in the context of tier four, being written uh, to be as simple as possible, not complying with these standards might create a false signal uh, to the public that these charities are not capable, and that's simply not true. I work with a lot of charities on a day-to-day -day basis, um, and they are, it's very clear from what I can see that they are highly effective at what they do. They just don't have any passion for financial reporting. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I will just finish up briefly. Um, I think that most of us know that financial reporting is important. Um, the most important takeaway is that charities don't exist to do financial reporting. They exist to advance their charitable purposes. Um, and there's obviously going to be scope to work together to reduce the need to spend time on this reporting, and then uh, hopefully, as a result of that, they'll actually be able to do what they really care about. Um, do I think there are too many charities in New Zealand? I don't. I simply think that there might be too many charities that are doing work that they don't find to be meaningful. Thank you. Great, thank you so much. And next we have Kate. Russell from the Fundraising Institute of New Zealand. Good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, so I wear a few hats coming here. Um, the Fundraising Institute is exactly what it says on the tin. We are uh, the professional institute for people who fundraise in New Zealand and for the organisations who employ them. But I also am here as a CEO of a funder of medical research and a brain research institute that raises funds. And of course, I'm also a donor. Ironically, just before this conference last week, my mother was away on holiday and I was to check her mail while she was gone. So I went every day that the mail was delivered and on one day there were no fewer than seven direct mail campaign letters in my mother's letterbox from charities, wonderful charities around New Zealand. My mum's 85 and she's mentally frail and we only just realised how much money she was giving away. Needless to say, we may have something to do uh, about that. If there's one thing I hear most from donors, it's there's too many charities now. How can I possibly choose? From funders, the decline letters for grant applications have become all too frequent for many charities in the past 10 years, always citing too much demand for too small pot of money. 
From government, we hear concern about the proliferation of small niche charities and how duplication could be costing the donating public far more than is necessary. You'd think that the Fundraising Institute of New Zealand's database would be bursting at the seams, but it isn't. Why? Because all too many of these charities are subsisting on just enough poverty line of viability, and they can't afford to be members of a professional institute that educates fundraisers and ensures its members are adhering to some kind of code of ethics and donor bill of rights. I, for one, am happy that if a person with passion sees a real need that remains unfulfilled in our community, they're free to start up something charitable to fill that gap. I believe that principle must be one that we fight for to the death because the ability of the community to look after its own when the government can't or won't is fundamental to a truly civil society. After all, we all know that Socrates said that we measure a civil society by how well it looks after the least of its citizens. So what is the problem here? Why is having so many charities in New Zealand such an issue? In my opinion, the issue lies in the questions that are not being asked about how necessary each charitable cause is and whether or not they're duplicating something that's already being done, which is pretty much what everybody else has said here. The proliferation of Me Too charities is at the heart of the issue. Have you got a specific form of cancer and feel like the Cancer Society isn't doing enough research into it? Form a new charity. Got a mate who needed some meals cooking for them when they had a new baby? form a charity? Do you have a child who doesn't have a specific group or actions wrapped around it by the big disability providers? Form a new charity. It feels like, to me at least, the millisecond someone feels their needs aren't being met, instead of working inside and with the organisations who are already here and already have the capacity to help and, and working with them to change or modify their focus, it is easier to go off and create something new. Sadly, the effect of all this, regardless of whether you think anyone should be able to create a charity if they want to, is a, confusion, how many cancer charities do we have? Who does what? Do they concentrate on care today or research for tomorrow? B, duplication in front and back office requirements. All of these charities need phones, a logo, letterhead, printing, some kind of management, either paid or voluntary, and they all have a cost, regardless of whether that's buried in non-disclosure of voluntary hours. We're still at causes, and it's causing donor fatigue. The Finns National Charity Calendar is chock full of awareness days, weeks, and even months. I hear donors saying that they have someone waving a bucket under their nose every time they go to the mall. All righteous causes, all worthy recipients, but the moment this proliferation starts to cause donors to shut down and feel weary, and worse still, irritated by the charity asks in front of them, we have a problem. As a sector, we've been talking up collaboration and the combining of charities for as long as I've been in the business, and that's a long time. But few charities have actually dipped their toe in the water because of the fear of a loss of autonomy and control over their own destiny. There are good examples, however, in community nests such as the Loft in Christchurch, which is a really terrific place where several charities come together and do share those front and back office um, systems. Hopefully the ability to start a charity to fulfil a need will continue. 
But what may need to change is the way we assess those new entities to see if not only are they fulfilling a need and demonstrating public benefit, but they're also doing something novel, new, something not already being done by someone or something else. The system of assessment in this regard needs to ensure that duplication is minimised. As a fundraiser, I'd rather see people with new ideas and focus going to the charity that fits their need most closely and working with them to increase their capacity than going out and necessarily starting something new. Like me, I'm sure you sometimes look at new charities and spring up and ask yourself, does this really need a formal charitable entity wrapped around it, or is it something nice to provide that could be provided by a willing group of volunteers without necessary, necessarily wrapping a legal entity around it? I'd like to see more resource put into holding to account the number of small registered charitable trusts who give away very little to the community, seeming hell-bent on simply building their reserves and whose reporting is far more from optimal, aside from noting each year how much the firms who are managing their funds are making in fees. Sorry, guys. In summary, I do think that there are too many charities, but the system as it stands allows this to happen. In fact, it actually encourages it to happen by not asking the right questions at the right time when the charities are actually formed. Thank you. Great. It's wonderful to have so many perspectives, isn't it? Um, the next uh, speaker is Sue Barker. Um, as she's coming up, just be conscious, after this, you're going to get the chance to ask some questions. So if you've got something in mind, um, at the back in the middle, there's a microphone. So as we get towards the end, maybe make your way there. And um, that way, we can have a smooth transition into the question and answer period and not have that awkward, who wants to ask the first question? So over to you, Sue. Thank you, Stephen. Um, just sort out this wee mic here. Can I acknowledge uh, Matthew's welcome? Thank you for your kind words, and thank you also to Craig and Peter, and thank you all for coming. Thank you so much to Charity Services and Cairns and all the people who have made this conference work. It's amazing how much work is involved, <laughs> and so thank you. It's lovely to see you all. And um, I've just used up 30 seconds, sorry about that. <laughs> so the question is, are there too many charities in New Zealand? Um, let me just work out. So when I Googled it, I found it's not a problem limited to New Zealand. There's probably nobody that's a surprise to nobody. I found articles from almost every jurisdiction with actually only Scotland. I couldn't find one from Scotland. I don't know why that is. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's an issue everywhere. But the problem for New Zealand is, as has been alluded to, we have more charities per capita than any comparable jurisdiction. So it's, uh, that makes the... Um, that puts it into a context. And this is leading to headlines which I've seen in a few, um, for example, the JB Weir Cause Report last year uh, reported that, according to its research, we see 2.5 new charities being established each, each business day. And this has led to, um, I got an email uh, just a few weeks ago um, with this massive big headline, New Zealand has over 27,000 registered charities with 50 new charities starting up every month. You've got to come to our course so we can work out how to, how to address this. But my view is that these figures are actually misleading because they only, they only look at one side of the ledger. That might be correct that new charities are, are being um, 
uh, coming onto the register at, at something like that rate. But that's only half the equation. At the same time, or on the other hand, uh, as at September 2015, over 6,000 charities had been deregistered. I'm sorry I don't have a more up-to-date figure, but I'm sure the figure would be higher, but you get the picture. Lots of charities are coming on, but they're also coming off, and those figures aren't being taken into account in those, um, in those headlines. So actually, the net number of charities is dropping. It's gone up by four, because <laughs> when I wrote this down, it was 27,824, and now it's 27,829. But that is about 22 less than it was this time last year. Um, so not a big difference, but the point is, is that it's going down, not going up. And um, 3,700 3, of those charities have been deregistered for failure to file annual returns. Um, Filing annual returns is the ticket to the game for being a registered charity, and um, you get two strikes and you're off. And a lot of these charities um, are charities that are doing good work, and, and for whatever reason, they, that didn't happen. So they reapply. They get back on. But they don't get back on with the same number. They have to make a new application, they get a new, a new number, and they've got a new entry on the charities register. If, if you look, there's quite a few charities that are on there several times, registered, deregistered, whatever, unlike the other registers that are um, maintained in New Zealand. If you look at the company's register, you'll see the history of when it's been on and off the register. So that, that leads to these figures being misleading because that is not a new charity. The other issue is that I know of at least one charity, a large national charity with branches all over the country, that uh, in response to the new financial reporting rules, for whatever reason, made its own governance decision to decentralise. So all its several hundred branches um, have now separately registered as charities. Now that's going to put the statistics out quite a bit <laughs> on our data set, and also those are not new charities. So um, I would like to draw attention to the Australian um, Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, who've done this very helpful fact sheet, Are There Too Many Charities in Australia? I think they really analysed the issues very well, and I commend it to you. It's a very good summary, I think. And they um, make the point, and, and the point has been made, made already, of the importance of diversity in size, mission, and location, particularly in building social capital. New Zealand has the highest level of social capital in the world. We should be so proud of that. But it's dropping. It's dropping. And um, what really worries me is um, uh, if, if, we, if we have a mindset that there's too many charities, somehow something, charity is bad, it's something to be reduced, what impact is that actually having on our social capital? And is that actually really what we want to see? Um, also, the point has also been made that there's no magic number of charities. The Charities Act doesn't say how many there have to be, how many of what particular type they have to be. Uh, if the charities meets the requirements, it must be registered. Um, and I do um, hear a bit about the fiscal consequences argument. Um, just let me find my point on that. <laughs> when you... Um, Oh, I can't remember what I was going to say on that. Anyway, <laughs> charities are independent and self-governing. We have freedom of association in New Zealand. It's, it's enshrined in our Bill of Rights Act. So um, this, I think this is an important uh, concept that we need to bear in mind, that we, we can't be telling, no, you can't uh, start a new charity. We have freedom of association, and this also impacts on our social capital. Um, 
I think cancer is the one that's always mentioned, and when you read these articles from various other countries, it's always cancer. There's 1,700 cancer charities in England and Wales. There's so many, there's 700 cancer charities in the US dedicated to breast cancer research, and so on. But cancer is a complex area with big difference, different, there's different types of cancer, there's different service delivery, research-focused awareness raising. And one of the comments that I read in one of those articles that I thought was particularly helpful, and it said, when a member of my family was diagnosed with an unusual type of cancer, I was grateful for the Rare Cancers Foundation, as it had heard of that particular cancer, unlike the larger charities I contacted first, which hadn't. There's a real importance of local charities, and that also ties into our social capital. Um, and I think the last word should go to Susan Pascoe, the immediate past commissioner of the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, um, to answer the question, are there too many charities in New Zealand? Uh, we cannot answer that question until we can say with confidence that every single need is being met in every single part of our country. And actually we're asking the wrong question. The question is not, are there too many charities? The question is, are all the needs being met? And if not, how can we best meet them? And I think basically we've all said the same thing. <laughs> so, thank you. <laughs> Great. Well, I think you'll agree there's a lot of food there for thought, um, and I'd love to hear your perspectives. So again, at the back, we've got um, two microphones, so don't be shy. Now's your chance to ask a question. Um, if you have a specific person you'd like to direct the question to, then feel free to do that. Um, while the first people go to ask a question, hopefully, because no one's going right now. <laughs> um, the things that really stu stood out to me from each of you, I thank you so much for your presentations. I thought they were all excellent. They raised amazing points because each one of them touched on slightly different things. And um, from Delwyn and Cheryl, I really got that sense of communication and transparency was a really vital thing here. And Jamie, your analysis of the actual statistics you know, let's break it down, let's not talk about 28,000 charities, how many are tier four versus tier one? I thought that was really helpful. And um, Kate, I thought uh, your presentation was great in terms of are there more barriers that we need to be having actually asking the right questions of people before they form the charity? And Sue, um, just that perspective on we need to make sure that our society is operating the way it should. And if there's a need, then maybe we do need more charities. So that was really helpful. Um, okay, so we have someone at the back. Would you like to ask your question? Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that panel discussion. I know it was something different from what I'm normally doing on this show, but I feel like it's in keeping with the idea of looking at purpose and why people are doing what they do. The biggest challenge to me was to encourage people before they start a charity to actually look around and see if maybe somebody's already doing what they're planning to do and maybe join in and help them instead of duplicating efforts and trying to compete for the same funding. If you enjoyed the content of the episode, then consider subscribing, please leave a rating or review, and tell others about this show. There's also more than 40 episodes in the back catalog, so you might want to check some of those conversations out. Until next time.